Hello, and welcome to Manga Explaining, the show where we recommend great manga to folks who haven't read much manga before. Hosted by Deb Aoki, David Brothers, Christopher Woodrow Butcher, and Chip Zdarsky. Follow along with our show notes and our reading list at mangasplaining.com. And true to my like tradition of messing up the intro, I wasn't supposed to say my name when I did in that one. I should have just said myself, David Brothers. But anyway, this is <laughs> maybe our 100th episode of Manga Explaining, and in celebration of this monumental achievement we have kicked deb and christopher off the show for the week and we're talking to jocelyn allen and andrew woodrow butcher the editor and translator of okinawa by susumu higa which was published in part by our friends christopher and deb chip i'm kind of excited to do like a co-interview with you yeah i'm, I'm excited to, uh, frankly i'm excited to not have chris here <laughs> just, just constantly interrupting and because this is uh, his project we can just we can just trash it it's amazing. And I've got the edit, so he can't do anything, really. Wow. He can really power. get us in the show notes, though. That's, Total that's power. the troublesome part. Yeah. His husband is here, so that might be an issue. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but we are here to talk about Okinawa by Susumu Higa, winner of the Japan Media Arts Award for Manga, nominated for the Fauve d'Or at the Angoulême International Comic Festival. I'm trying my best with the French. <laughs> and essentially, Okinawa is... Two parts, kind of two graphic novels in one that chart the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Okinawa in World War II, then also life on the island, kind of in the aftermath of all of that, stretching decades up through the 2010s. Really fascinating and moving work. I'm stoked, let's say, to have the editor and the translator here to shed a little light on the product, or even just to talk about the project with us. I shouldn't like promise you know, <laughs> magic tricks and secrets and things like that. Just to have a nice conversation. But Andrew, can we start with you? Sure. Kind of how did you get involved in the project? And also, the first time you read Okinawa, kind of what was your big takeaway? Like what struck you as being really quality about this book? How did I get involved? We were talking about pulling this project together before manga explaining existed. Like it was going to be a DIY kind of publishing endeavor. And I really just raised my hand among our little group of, at that time, three, and said, oh, can I do this part? I was very enthusiastic and pushy. So I think that's how I got involved. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be, this is the first book I edited ever. And I wanted to try my hand at, at doing that for a while. And, and this opportunity seemed to be in front of me. So really, I just was like, let me do it. Let me do it. And then I, they let me do it. <laughs> it's amazing how often that works yeah <laughs> and what I don't remember I don't remember a first reading because I sort of read it in weird phases of linguistic access because I think mm -hmm. I was first shown the Japanese editions which I can't really read can't read at all mm -hmm. but I could obviously read in the sense that they're visual and, and flip through and talk about what I thought of the work and and that sort of thing, but I didn't always, I didn't have like a direct access. And then I'm pretty sure I encountered the French editions, which I could decently read. Yeah, I think that was the order of operations, but, you know, obviously still reading in a second language mm -hmm. and in a translation. So it was sort of like gradually came into focus because then eventually, of course, I read Jocelyn's translation and that was the first time I had sort of like a direct, more direct experience of reading the book. Well, more direct and less direct as translations are so so 
it's interesting that you came to it first through the French version then. Yeah. Jocelyn, do you do you read French? Yeah, yeah, I read French as well. Wow. Okay, so when when you're translating something that you know has been adapted into other languages that you also know, do you read those to see what they did with the material? Yes. <laughs> okay, so I'm assuming you did that with this then. I, I don't read them so much as I reference them. Like yeah. I find that, especially with French, and this is not a slam on, on the French translation market by any means. Oh, but you can. French... You can you can slam them. That's fine. All right. Like, let's get down and dirty. Let's uh, shove some faces <laughs> against some walls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the French translation market is more kind of like they, they're lean more towards adapting a work. So they'll translate it and then they'll kind of rewrite it largely in a way that we don't generally do in English. Like it's kind of frowned upon to do that in English. So French translations tend to be a little looser from the source text, the Japanese manga. So for my style of translation, it's not very useful to actually read them because I find that interferes with me staying with the Japanese, but it's good for when I'm like, what is he saying here? Like, what does this even mean? Then I can look at someone else's take on it, basically, and be like, oh, that's how you interpreted that. Actually, I don't think that's right, but I now I understand what it is. Or actually, you're totally on the right track. I'm going to follow what your lead. So having those like other translations is, is a useful reference tool like that. But I don't actually read them through because I find it interferes with, with my own translation. Andrew, did, did that interfere when you read Jocelyn's eventual translation? Like, were there things in Jocelyn's translation where you're just like oh that's not how i remember it or it's coming across differently than what i read in french i would say no it didn't interfere part of that is because this this was a long project over many years so it wasn't like i read it on tuesday and then read it read the you know translation from jocelyn on friday and was like wait a minute (laughs) i i read the french and then a year and a half later i was looking at translation and so so there wasn't that direct thing though i will say For this project and for something else I've worked on since where there's been a French edition, I've had the same experience that Jocelyn is talking about where it's like this, I don't quite get this scene or something. What did the French do here? Mm. Not that it's going to be, you know, a better rendition from the Japanese or anything, but more like this is a problem of making the scene work or something. And I just need to know what the options are, what some options might be. Like a little more context is yeah. hugely helpful, I guess. A different angle. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, hmm. definitely. So in, in the in the early stages of this, like what makes you decide on a project, Jocelyn? I know you're friends with Chris and Andrew. And is are you interested in kind of more historical material or or do you kind of veer away from that because it maybe it's harder? I would say that I'm pretty interested in everything, which is maybe reflected in like the, my choices of translation projects. Yeah. Cause if you look at my list of publications, it's like all over the place. I, I tend to like do more stuff like queer manga and like things of like BL and LGBTQ plus kind of stuff, but I really have done everything. So I've done a lot of historical fantasy, like the Rose of Versailles by oh, yeah, Ikeda yeah. Ryoko, which mm-hmm. came out from Udon. I think you guys read that. Yeah, we, 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 we covered it. Point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think we should, I think we may have shouted you out in it. Uh, thanks for the shout out. <laughs> I tend to just go with whatever interests me, and for Okinawa and this this project in particular, I've always been really fascinated with the history and culture of Okinawa itself. So even yeah. before I got involved with this, before the first time I read this book, I was 
kind of fascinated with because it's one of those places like it was annexed by Japan and it's had this really tumultuous history. It has its own culture and language that's very distinctive and separate from Japanese culture. And as a language nerd, I love Uchinaguchi, the Okinawan native language. It's so cool. I keep trying to study it, but I'm really bad at it. So <laughs> <laughs> when this came along, I was like, oh, this is already tailors with what I'm interested in. So now a lot of me choosing projects is like, oh, I can learn more about something by doing this project. So when Okinawa came along, I was like, oh, I can learn more about Okinawa. Great. Let's do some translating. <laughs> like, yeah, that's awesome. One thing I realized reading this was a couple years before I was born, my family, my grandfather's in the Air Force. They were stationed in Okinawa. So it's always been a place that I've heard a lot about, but had no mental image or even kind of like inkling of what it was like, other than, you know, the place where my mom took a lot of cool pictures in high school, like that kind of thing. Yeah. So seeing such a a personal and intimate look at the people of Okinawa is really, what's the best word for it? Really fascinating. Like I was entertained and then also like educated at the same time, but not in an edutainment kind of way, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you were not edutained. (laughs) But Chip, how did you feel checking this out? Like, was it, I assume you were pretty into it. It seems like something would be up your alley. Yeah, I mean, my only reference point for Okinawa is Karate Kid Part 2. Mm. So, so yeah, this, uh, very similarly. This, yeah, I would say that entertained me and this educated me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I really didn't know a lot about Okinawa. And I was actually really fascinated. Well, first of all, the fact that the book didn't dwell as much on the idea of the Battle of Okinawa, but the after effects and like the decades after and, and modern day. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important because... I think the tendency is usually to focus on those, like the the pivotal moment instead of like the aftermath of those moments. So I, I appreciated that in this. And also the, the interview at the end, manga explaining readers will know and uh, probably agree with me. I love the fact that I do not read the essays at the end of any of these <laughs> manga collections. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel that the work just down on its own. It's not. It's not laziness. I want. You I'm to totally that. the same, by the way. I don't <laughs> read. So I don't read, yeah, I don't like to read the essays. <laughs> yeah, but but this one I, I actually looked forward to reading, just because you could tell like the story was obviously very personal, and I want some more insight. So I found the essay as kind of informative and interesting as the rest of the the short stories. One of the things that actually jumped out for me in that essay, and I, I wonder if it like if it factors in at all to Jocelyn, your choice to do this book, and Andrew, your choice to make this your publishing imprint's first book. The author talks a lot about how he sees the relationship between Japan and Okinawa the same as Russia and Ukraine, which is not something that really kind of crossed my mind, even kind of during the reading of this, even though I knew about like military bases and stuff. Was there was there any concern from either of you about maybe stepping in it a little bit with with mainland Japanese publishers as a result? Like, how is this work viewed in the rest of the manga industry? Oh, such a big mm. question. I'm, I'm, I used to be a journalist, so. <laughs> oh, no. I'm being grilled. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the war with Russia and Ukraine? I want your answers now, damn it. Oh, no, I'm just a translator. <laughs> Well, I mean, I can start. I'll start with Andrew because, like, obviously, you know, this is your your choice to to publish this as the first as the first of your imprint. 
were there any concerns going in or and and also how do you feel this work is viewed amongst japanese publishers i i don't think there were any concerns about like this being too political or something yeah. certainly with regard to like tokyo publishing i don't think that anyone is sitting in an office in tokyo fretting about the english language editions of of these books which came out like you know 15 years ago yeah. in japan i think they're they're not thinking about it at all yeah. and and even we asked higa what the reaction was in mainland japan and he said something to the effect of like the reaction wasn't very big yeah. like it wasn't it just didn't cause a political sensation which is the problem you know that's the problem yeah. of you know that people aren't paying attention to these issues mm-hmm. and so he's doing you know this book does what it can you know we're doing what we can he goes doing what he can to raise these issues but but they're just not having a lot of traction and and there's a lot of yeah so that's that's the sort of problem i don't think we were worried about it being overly political we did think it we did have a conversation for sure about like how will a, an American readership or an Anglophone readership react to this? Because it's also about American imperialism and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But again, yeah. I think the, the answer is, well, it's important that a reaction, you know, it would be great if it was a reaction, if people started thinking about this more. So, yeah. Yeah. I was fascinated reading it that, not that it's like, it's got like a both sides feel to it, but like, especially in the scenes during the war and just after, like the American soldiers are portrayed kindly for the most part. Yeah. I found that, I found that really interesting. Like the, 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 the stress throughout the book kind of lies in the, they're not leaving, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then just, just, it, it's just the, it's just the fact of their presence and they're not necessarily the individuals aren't necessarily the bad people, but the the complex that has like dug into Okinawa is the problem. Yeah, I can see how it wouldn't hit as being like people need to pay attention to this problem as more like this is a this is just how life is right now, and it's it's not it's not the best situation, but yeah. it's complicated. There's an yeah. amazing amount of empathy in his view, right? Even, even when he's outlining big issues that are real problems, he still has a lot of empathy for the individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's totally pointing at the bigger systemic issues, right? Like it's not just, and the thing is the reason there wasn't such a big political controversy about the book when it was published in Japan is because this has been the state of affairs for like 70 years, you know, like no one cares. No one in mainland Japan thinks about Okinawa except as a place to go on holiday, which is the issue. But you publish stuff about like, and, you know, you publish a book like this, trying to raise awareness of like what it's like to be living in these situations, but it doesn't cause really any stir because it's just part of the air you breathe in Japan. Like on the news, they'll be like, oh, the governor of Okinawa is mad at America again. Mm, Next up, the weather. Like, it's just, it's constantly there. So it's really hard to make people, I think, in mainland Japan really notice that this mm-hmm. is like a real issue. Like this isn't just like, oh, it's fine. The Americans are there. We can go to America town when we go to Naha. Like there's no, 
impetus to change because the Japanese government likes the status quo. They like having the Americans there. There's a financial incentive. There's lots of quid pro quo kind of things going on. Mm-hmm. And Okinawa is the poorest prefecture in the country. They don't have any political financial heft with the mainland government. So things continue as they are. <laughs> the bit where the guy mentions that the base stores a lot of stuff, but it doesn't make or produce anything that actually benefits the island was really moving, I think. Mm. And I think from a North American perspective, my first thought went to Native Americans, but also Hawaii in the way that the U.S. has kind of controlled that for a long time. Yeah. In a way that we don't really think about very often, you know, to our discredit. There's yeah. definitely parallels between Okinawa and Japan and Hawaii and America, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah. the, the chapter where a bunch of people on the island were also protesting against it who worked on the base. And everyone's like, how do you work on the base and then also protest? Well, they're like, the money's good and we still have to support our family. But like, we got to think about the future as well and kind of what all this means for us coming down the line. Yeah. Yeah. He could provide so many different perspectives, I think, in the book. Yeah. And he's like... You- everyone's been saying like so empathetic to every individual like he's not painting anyone as a villain any individual is a villain he's just trying to show like this is what is happening in okinawa from all these different perspectives which is why i think the work is so effective because Mm -hmm. he doesn't just limit himself to like here's my story like he's just showing like this is what's going on and so you can see it from all of these different angles and really understand in a deeper way, I think. Even though they're short stories, there's a real depth to the entire collection that I, I think is really yeah. fascinating. And I hope that readers will come away with a lot of, of the empathy that he has for the situation. I think it fits together phenomenally well for like comics that were drawn 15 years apart, I think. Yeah. 95 yeah, There's and a big gap between the two of them. Yeah. yeah. Do you find, Jocelyn, with with a book like this that's kind of nonfiction set in Japan, do you have to kind of rein in, I guess, kind of more um, casual inflection in, in something like this? Like, does it, like reading this, it feels a bit more kind of like, maybe it's just because other, other manga I've read usually do with like teens and things like that. So you're, you're having to come up with like a lot of kind of modern kind of language. And here it seems very kind of straightforward. Mm. And maybe a bit more subtle. Is that is that a reflection of the the text, or is that a reflection of you knowing it's nonfiction? It's definitely a reflection of the text. Obviously, I'm translating, knowing that there's the nonfiction element to it. But mm-hmm. the stories are themselves fiction, right? They're just based on actual experiences. I think the closest yeah. non actual nonfiction in the book is, I think it's called My Mother. The story about his yeah. mother. That's actually based on like a true story and like basically 100% true. Well, maybe 95. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to, I don't want to describe too how much truth, like it's it's not me to say, but his style of writing is like that though. It's very straightforward. It's very like, I mean, it's naturalistic. Like I think the characters speak in a way that's very natural to Mm -hmm. their positions and and, and the lives they're living, but he's not going for slang or weird, you know, special kind of, jargon or he doesn't do a lot of the manga tropes of like having every character have a certain different ending to the way they speak you know like yeah every in a lot of manga they'll be like one person always says nay at the end of their words and one person always says nda at the end of their sentences and he doesn't do any of those kinds of tricks so i think that helps to provide that more 
straightforward, kind of naturalistic feel to the dialogue and the text. Yeah. He's, he's a good writer, and it's so I'm just following his lead, basically. Because he's, you know, not only, you know, he's an alive author, but he's also been interviewed for this publication. Do you ever have contact with him for clarification of anything because it, it deals with history and nonfiction wrapped in fiction? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I haven't reached out for him to him for like clarification on things because I think, like I said, I, I feel his work is straightforward in that yeah. way. Like it's not it's not complicated for me as a translator, except for you know conveying it accurately. You did get a walking tour of Naha from him before he started. <laughs> I was going to say that, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. So it, it helps to have that contact with him because actually, before when we went originally when we were trying to publish this as an independent project. Chris and I went to... Andrew, you came with us, didn't you? I didn't visit him that trip, though. So I wasn't No, but there, you came on the trip. I was, I was yeah. on the island at the same time, yes. <laughs> I went to the museum. Oh, right, right. Chris and I went to meet with... He got to sign papers and talk contract stuff. And he was... He's an extremely generous person with his time and his home and his heart. He's just, like, such a great guy. And he was like let me give you this walking tour of Naha. And so he took us around to all these different places in Naha, like the, the market, and we bought some of those delicious deep fried donut things. What are those? Sata Andaji, I think. Andago? Anyway, I can't remember the exact name of them, but they're really good. If you ever go to Okinawa, get them. All right. And he just kind of gave us like the history, like this has been here for this long. And he took us to like some burial uh, sites where like, they're just integrated into the city. So it's just like you're walking along, there's a mound. And it's like, that's a burial site. And he told us like all of this history about, you know, those kinds of sites and the city in general. And then certain islands where he set some of the stories, like, you know, there's stories on like those remote islands off of mm -hmm. the main Okinawan island. So he told us a lot of stories about those places and the history and culture there and about the spirituality, the native religion. I use religion in quotes because it's more of a spirituality yeah. than religion. He told us a lot about like those places of worship that you see in the Mabui section of Okinawa. So getting all of that kind of like just kind of bathing in the context of the story and his interpretations of that history was really, really helpful and informative when I was actually doing the translation. So I think that's yeah. part of the reason why I didn't really need to be like, hey, can you confirm this for me? Because he already kind of had. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He seemed yeah. very personable in the interview, uh, especially by the end, where his last answer is, great, let's drink. <laughs> <laughs> he fed us. He He's so nice because Andrew and I are both vegetarians. And he remembered that as a vegetarian from the last time that we saw him, which was like five years earlier. Wow. Wow like so thoughtful and so he had prepared this little feast for us with like not little plenty feast, of vegetarian food yeah <laughs> big feast <laughs> was a lot of food it was a mountain <laughs> but not much food yeah and he had so much vegetarian food there too for me because he's like i know you can't eat meat and so he's like is this good and i was like this is way too much sir <laughs> <laughs> oh that's amazing so i was glad to have andrew with me like please andrew eat more vegetarian Share food. the wealth yeah could you all talk about the interview, kind of the process of getting that done a little bit? Because yeah. I'm always, I've never gotten to interview a mangaka before. I talk to like a comics guy at least once a week. It's super old news to me now. But like manga creators, <laughs> what is that like? Like, did you go to his house for this interview or like meet at a coffee shop? 
We, we did. We house. were sat in yeah. his garden. And mm. he had prepared mochi and tea. And yeah, we just sat outside. And I think the, you know, this is a, the fact that this is a manga about politics and history made mm-hmm. the interviewing juicy and kind of easy, you know, in the sense that well, there is a lot to talk about. Like, this is a book about mm-hmm. real stuff around us in the world. Yeah. But he's very forthcoming, very, very forthcoming. He was not a hard interview subject at all. <laughs> Just sort of like, hey, what about this? And then there he goes. And that interview, you know, I don't remember how many pages it turned out as, but it was a long sit down. It was it was like two or three hours. <laughs> yeah, it was like three hours as the yeah. interpreter. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. How, how I mean, how does that work then? Like, like Jocelyn, do you interpret and then translate all of it, and then Andrew, you edit it down? Yes. Yeah. Wow, that's a that's, lot that's of work. So during the interview, he's like Andrew said, he's so forthcoming and so like willing to talk about this stuff that like half the time he wouldn't even let me translate the questions for him like he's like yeah yeah i got it and you just like start talking (laughs) like he understands enough english to be like yeah no i get the gist of this let me go off i'm ready (laughs) wow that sounds great yeah and then speaking about the translating and interpreting after we did the interview chris sort of like transcribed everything and then i went over it with the tape to make sure that everything was accurate and kind of redid some stuff so Mm -hmm. you're getting the nice version of it, the like cleaned up, <laughs> accurate, everything's good version in the book. Yeah. There was one point, the interview is 17 pages, by the way. Oh. Very good. And on page 10, it's one of my favorite moments in the actual book. I've got several favorites, but this is the last one I, I spotted. When he asks if any of you are religious, and the manga explaining extra crew says it's difficult to say. I thought mm. that was like so on point for the kind of book this is and almost could have been a conversation from a short story in the book, the way it kind of speaks to how complex life can be. Yeah. Like there are a lot of characters who say, well, I don't really believe in spirits and stuff, but like maybe I should go pray for a little while or something. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's it's pretty, it's pretty amazing how many stories kind of follow that path Yeah, where at some point it's like, all right, we got to call in this person to take care of this with a, with a prayer. Or ceremony. Yeah. It's like it's like I started to get used to the rhythm of it. I'm like, oh, I bet when I turn the page, someone's gonna <laughs> call for this person again. Dun, 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 the Utah dun, appears. Dun, dun, dun. Right? Yeah. Super good. But yeah. the it speaks to kind of also the vibe I got from the stories of how like the fact that there's a graveyard for everyone who died at the Battle of Okinawa felt really significant. And yeah. the the baseball player remarks on that know inside the story how he's like wow i we have one of our own but it's only for our dead yeah like it just feels really moving and kind of like maybe something we should aspire to yeah and the religion question reminded me of that because there's a lot in religion that's good there's a lot of religion that's bad and it's kind of like how do you find your way between them and the answer is nobody really knows as near as i can tell (laughs) (laughs) so it's weirdly comforting to read a graphic novel with similar ideas i think that it's important because we, we did ask him about, you know, if he was religious and or, or sort of why the, why this presence was there. And I think that mm-hmm. this sort of shows why the word religion isn't exactly right, because yeah. 
it this is sort mm-hmm. of standing in for like the, not that these practices aren't religious if perhaps but they're standing in for sort of a attachment to culture and history a community history you know cultural history mm-hmm. and that it's yeah it's sort of like let's let's fix everything let's fix this stuff in this chapter with a prayer but it's it's not it it is the prayer but it's also the the coming together and the just like this is a way to show that this community, you know, still has its roots and still exists and has its practices. I think it's really, like, I think that's really rich. I think there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing is ever solved by any one single effort. There's always, like, a group Mm -hmm. of people in that moment who all kind of contribute in some way. Yeah. Chip, did you have a favorite short story in here? One where you were like, ah, that's the one? I don't know if there's there's like uh, one that's like the standout for me, but it's funny when you mentioned that moment in the baseball player one. Like mm-hmm. I think that was the moment in it that that hit me the most. The oh, recognition yeah. of the fact that they recognize everyone who died, no matter the side. Like that mm-hmm. that hit me really hard. I was just like, oh wow, that's like I never I, I should consider it because I've you know I've, I've I've been to the memorial in Washington for Vietnam, and it's like mm-hmm. oh that's that's really a powerful thing, but like. I'm like, how much more powerful would it be if it had all the Vietnamese, like, like every everyone who died? Because like that's what they should be memorializing: the fact that all these people died in this, in this, in this war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that one, that one, that one hit me pretty hard. Yeah, I think for me it was the one about the military workers, the people who worked on base, because it was the closest to my real life experience. Yeah, working at a Burger King on a military base. Which counted as a government job, so I got two raises a year. It was actually kind of amazing, <laughs> but also like sort of strange. The older I get, it's like, oh, that really is kind of permeated into our culture in a way that like we can never be rid of military bases again. And that's yeah. something that comes up in Okinawa over and over. From I want to say the first story has a line where they say like, oh, if you build a base here, war's going to come here. Like that's how it happens. That's how it always yeah. happens. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say it always feels a bit like I didn't actually do the homework. But the first story is probably the best. Yeah. Like it, it really kind of sums up the feeling of like war encroaching upon mm-hmm. a community and just how out of their control it all is. Mm-hmm. I quite like that one. Uh, how, about, and, how about how about yeah. Jocelyn and Andrew? What are your favorites? Uh, oh, dang. I know, Andrew, do you have a favorite? <laughs> first ones that stand uh, out in your head. Yeah, yeah, the ones that stand out. <laughs> the one that I think of when people ask me this question is... The one with the documents found in the caverns under Shuri Castle. Oh yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. Like, and so the 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 war is coming. It's clearly coming. They're trying to sort of evacuate the national treasures in this in this palace, basically. And they discover a room, a cavern full of documents that will disintegrate if exposed to air, uh, like contemporary air or something. Uh, yeah. Uh, different air than the air they've been stored in. And so there's this rush to translate everything and get it down before everything is destroyed. But I love, I, I think that's like, a, I think this book is about, not just about the destruction of, of stuff, but obviously a culture and these documents are culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that works really well. But I love how he also weaves one of the texts, one of these ancient texts, describe, or not ancient, but hundreds of years old texts, about a political situation in Okinawa, you know, 400 years ago or something into the contemporary story and shows sort of like how this stuff is cyclical and Okinawa has been caught between other powers many times in its history. Yeah. 
I took a screenshot of that page where the teacher and the students are the mm. people in the story. Mm-hmm. Because at first I was reading very late. I was like, oh, wait, did I miss something? But then I flipped back real fast. I was like, no, no, this is exactly what I thought. And it's so good. Like it's yeah. such a good approach to that story to make it very modern and personal. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a great one. I also, I just love the fact that no one else gives a shit because there's no gold or jewels yeah. that were found. <laughs> like, oh, whatever, all right. <laughs> that was really poignant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. a bunch of papers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jocelyn, how about you? What do you think of? I, I really like that story as well. Obviously, I, I totally agree with Andrew on the cultural elements that it brings into play that I think are really important for this book. Mm-hmm. The military employees story really resonates with me as well because I'm a base brat. So yeah. Yeah, I okay. grew up in this kind of environment. So it, I, I totally, yeah, I really related to what you were saying there, David, because it's like I grew up in this world where like, yeah, everyone wears uniforms and they're playing, they're getting ready to go to war. Like that's their job. And I'm yeah. surrounded by that. Like I go, we didn't go to the convenience store. We went to the Canucks because that's the military we had the store. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so like when I left, when we first lived on a non-base environment, it was such a weird experience for me. I was like 13 years old, I think. And I'd never lived mm-hmm. anywhere where people weren't at war, technically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we went to stores that didn't have military goods. Like it's just really weird. <laughs> so reading military and the military employee and, and that aspect of Okinawan life, I really felt that in my bones. I was like, Oh yeah, I know this culture. Like, and, and seeing it as an adult and seeing it in a different country like that was just like this whole new perspective. And yeah, it gave me yeah. that thought, like, this is really weird that we do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like the story says, you know, like build a base and you you ask for war. Like mm-hmm. these people, that's their job is technically to be ready to go kill people. So mm-hmm. that really resonated with me, like in a personal way, but also in a way like as a grown up living in this world and as a person who spent her adult life in Japan and like all of these complex factors tied into it for me. So I think that was mm-hmm. maybe my favorite story, but it's hard to pick one of all your precious children, so. <laughs> yeah. Of course, of course. I had, a, I had a question about the sound effects. Oh, yeah. What, what goes into the decision to not incorporate the sound effects into the art and just have them translated uh, subtly underneath? Like, at what point do you kind of make that decision? What goes into that decision? We decided that pretty early. And I think part of it was... The, a lot of these, like the, his backgrounds are very detailed. There's, I think mm-hmm. it was like just the sheer scale of trying to get them into the panels was a, was a very big project. And also the register of the book and the readership of the book and what that readership needed, we thought was different than sort of the, than lighter fare, you know, yeah. that, mm. that people could deal a bit with. It, the sound effects being glossed rather than being integrated. And so, so Jocelyn, do you, do you feel ripped off by that process? <laughs> because I feel like one of the cool things about being a, a translator is like you come up with a sound effect and then you see it like all written out big and cool. <laughs> but I'm looking at a page here with a helicopter and there's just like tiny, tiny text at the bottom that just says wood, 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 wood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i feel really really ripped off i feel yeah, like yeah, i didn't get my so. due here <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I actually i actually prefer especially like 
Andrew was saying with a book like this, which is geared towards a definite adult audience and, and people who are more, it's not like airplane reading kind of situation. Like, and yeah. I'm again, yeah. not denigrating airplane reading. I love it. But like, this is people who are really going to engage with the text and like read it. And, and I think in that case, having the subtitles for the sound effects is, is more effective as the work. Yeah. Like it, it feels more like you get more of the power of the original art and, and the original work. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with people doing whatever with the sound effects. Once I send my script in, it's like, well, you do you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah. really have any say over how things go after that. So I've, I've made my peace with that a long time ago. Do you, uh, I mean, I, I, I have feelings about this part, but do you, when the book is in print and you get a copy of the book, do you, do you crack it open or do you just like put it on the shelf? I open it and go, oh, look, a book. And I open yeah. the back and go, there's my name. And then I close it and put it on the shelf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, I never how long, read it. How long into your career b- before you started to actively do it that way? Like, w- was there a point where you just like, your first one, obviously you're, you're flipping through it, you're seeing the words and it's like, it's cool as hell, I'm assuming. Uh, I mean, kind of no. <laughs> I mean, it really? sounds awful, but... Like translating a book means that I'm reading it so many times Mm, and like I'm going over it. Like I read it. I'm reading the Japanese. I'm looking at that. I'm writing the English. I'm going over it again. I'm checking against the original Japanese, rewriting, tweaking. I have looked at that book so many times by the time I send in my script that when the book comes, I'm like, oh yeah, you like, I don't, I don't want to look at you anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's probably like six months between sending the script and actually getting the book as well. At the least, yeah. Time. Sometimes yeah. years. Yeah. 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 Sometimes years. <laughs> <laughs> I think I sent the script for this. I finished in like 2019. Yeah, something like that. Something wow. like that. Yeah. Nice. It was before the pandemic, so... I yeah. d- please don't ask me about specific translation choices because I can no longer remember. Them. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I did actually have one. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> yeah, no, it's more a joke. The I'm sure it's not actually an Ultraman bit, but there's a moment when a mother jumps into the grave where they're hiding out, and she goes "shuach" or "shuachi," and it's the same sound Ultraman makes when he like warps in from outer space. <laughs> oh no! Really? <laughs> yeah, classic nerd, Jocelyn. <laughs> Oh, you found me out. But I'm sure it's just like a hua type of sound or something, you know. It might be a reference. Like if if it if it was exactly the same, I would have used because I would have looked it up and and yeah. if it was the same sound. It's like I a little bit different. Sound. Oh. You know what? You know what, Jocelyn? This is a serious book, and frankly, I'm upset that you <laughs> snuck in an Ultraman reference. <laughs> Look, we have to we have to get our fun where we can. All right. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Andrew, you've got a couple of credited letterers on this one. Patrick Crotty mm-hmm. of Piao Studios, big fan of that guy, and Kayla E. Can you tell us a little bit about what they brought to the series for you? Was it just sort yeah. of like, here's the script, go at it? Because or... Kayla did the design as well, right? Yeah. yeah. So Kayla's, Kayla was working through Fantagraphics with us to, to put the print edition together. So Patrick, mm-hmm. we I think I wasn't completely involved in this, but I think that we put out a call um, because we were doing this as sort of an independent project who would like to letter a a book with us. And he raised his hand. And so he and I worked together. Well, he, he did the work obviously, but 
worked on that, which was great. Kayla got involved when we were designing the print edition. It ended up having a very different look than we'd imagined, which is great. It's beautiful, I think. It turned out well. Mm-hmm. We just did some tweaks to make it fit with the, the style of the print edition. So I would say cool. it's, it's still like 90%, 80%, 90% Patrick's lettering that you're seeing there. Yeah, it was very clean. I always liked, I mean, word balloon size is always an issue in localization just because of the, yeah. all of the differences between English and Japanese. But something that was really nice about this book was actually the white space in the balloons when the characters were speaking. Mm-hmm. Like mm. it kept it from feeling very cramped, I guess, is the best way to put it. It feels very natural, I suppose. That's good to hear. It felt, sometimes it was a challenge to get any white space into those balloons. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's not not a wordy book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's great. <laughs> I'm glad it works. I was also going to ask about the actual process between the, the two of you. Because editing a book that's already in existence and feels like a very different thing. Do you just have like a, a, a very light hand on the edit of what Jocelyn sends in? Or are there any points of disagreement between the two of you? I want to find out about beefs. Right. <laughs> oh, we're beefing. I, I still remember. Yeah. Yeah. It's 2019. <laughs> yeah. Started a whole pandemic. It's been really hard to remain friends, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Basically, Jocelyn would send me the script and I would read it alongside the images and I would be like, can you clarify this? I don't understand it. Or that you know that was really it just like i have just a couple of questions for this chapter can you let me know does this mean this in this sense or this in this sense and then sometimes the editing would be like massaging things so they'd fit in the word balloon you know that that Mm. we we need to cut four words out of this or it's not getting in there so let's rearrange (laughs) this okay yeah this has a bunch of editorial choices to be made around like how we are going to represent the layers of different languages because this book on the page has Japanese, it has Okinawan dialect Japanese, and Okinawan language, and English in it. And so yeah. we had to make decisions around, like, what are we italicizing? What goes between quotation marks? What are we glossing at the end of the book? There was a bunch of editorial choices to be made there, which, you know, I didn't make in a vacuum. I also would be like, Jocelyn, what do you think of this? Does this make sense? Or sometimes I would have to say, is this, like, a random exclamation or is this like a word in a dialect or, you know, so that I know how to treat it. Mm. But yeah, I w- it's not like I was like, okay, well let's get rid of this scene. Let's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the manga waning cut. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. think Andrew had a really light editorial touch compared to like a lot of editors I've worked with. I think you really were just like, wanted to maintain the structure that was already there and just make it as good as it can be, which was really a gratifying experience for me. I was like, oh, great. We're, we're getting this done. It felt like a really natural, good edit. And I think it came through in the book, I hope. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. You mentioned cutting text to fit the balloon. Do you ever go the opposite route and increase the size of the balloon? Like go into the art and actually like give yourself more space? In this case, that did not happen. Okay. I'm pretty sure. You're lazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So lazy. <laughs> right. Well, Patrick was lazy. Because I wouldn't have yeah. been the person to do that. <laughs> no, we didn't do that. There were only a couple instances where, where we did anything dabbled in the art at all. There are maybe two or three moments where the sound effect has to be in the balloon. 
mm-hmm. or or whether there needed to be like drawn text. Aside from that, it's just the we emptied the balloons of the Japanese. We filled them up with English. This is maybe a bit too nerdy, but you're talking about representing the different languages. So when the Americans are are speaking, you do the pointy brackets. Yeah, which I find to be a very North American thing. Is that a conscious choice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I think I I think I had that in my original script as a suggestion. I can't remember, but I felt like using a North American convention would make it easier for readers to follow along. Like, if you're a comics reader, you're already used to seeing other languages done with those kinds of yeah, like angle brackets or something like that. So for me, that was definitely I I know I put that choice on the table, but I can't remember how that final decision was made andrew do you i i think you're right that they were in your script already and i was like yeah this totally is readable and makes sense to me let's keep on doing that it's funny because having done 100 episodes of this and obviously my journey through reading all this manga i've been broken of that (laughs) like i now i look at those i'm like oh no i don't i don't like that i like i like how it's been done in all the other different types of manga and like even in my own book a little uh, plug for Image Comics public domain that I write and draw, and I color and I letter it. it I design well, did you it win as well. An award for that one, I, yeah, I won the Eisner th- this year for best <laughs> new series. But I don't really want to get into that. This isn't about my project; it's about your project. <laughs> but I, I I picked up a manga thing for for representing other languages, which was the double line word balloon. And oh. I think I think maybe maybe it was ping pong that was the first one to kind of. Oh yeah, I I, I, I noticed that. Yeah, yeah, I quite like that. It felt very natural and didn't interfere with the text. But seeing it, seeing it here, I'm just like, oh, I think they were thinking of like the North American audience, and uh, looks like I'm correct once again. There's also a thing there that we can't touch the art as much as po- like we want to not touch the art as much as possible. So doing that yeah. like double line balloon would mean we would have to go in and redraw something. Yeah. So that's sort of we, we want to work with the conventions of the text alone if possible because yeah. it's sort of like a taboo to redraw the art and i feel like also there are some word balloons that mix languages but have to be a half double mm-hmm. <laughs> half double outline balloon <laughs> <laughs> i would love yeah. to see the math on figuring that out yeah i, yeah. I, I like to do see you, that <laughs> do you recall how they were rendered in japanese the english speakers I think, usually, yeah, if I'm recalling correctly, they were rendered horizontally. So usually Japanese text is oh, interesting. vertical. Oh. Or I don't have the manga here with me, so I can't double check. But I know he, usually there's that convention in manga, like it, if you're doing the text vertically, then if the Japanese is vertical, then you do the English. If it's supposed to be another language, you do it horizontally to make it clear. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's the usual convention, so... I'm still learning about manga. <laughs> <laughs> After a hundred episodes, you still episodes. have something to learn. Yeah. We can get Chris to put the original Japanese in the show notes, get a little more education for our friends and family who are listening. No, that's really cool. Thanks for... Yeah. I never thought about that aspect of lettering manga like in Japanese. Yeah. I mean, manga lettering in Japanese is really different because they don't letter it, like... The artist yeah. does all of the art stuff and they send it to the printer and the printer just basically puts the text into the where it's supposed to go on the page. Yeah. So like there's not like font choice or like <laughs> it's all the same font. It all looks the same. Basically. Wow. Yeah, there's like no John Workman of manga lettering. No. Really? Yeah. It's nothing like that. So when you're trying to distinguish languages like that, you need an actual 
like physical way of distinguishing them so that that doesn't rely on font because the printer is not going to do any special fonts for you. They're just not. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Why is there is there a reason for that? Like, is it just no one's ever attempted? Production. Yeah, I th- I think it's a history of manga thing. Like, because manga comes from like starts in in the magazines, and so magazines have like their own way of doing things. And early manga magazines used to do a mix of like text and manga, so it'd be like sh- short stories, and um, and then they'd also have manga. So when you're doing the printing, especially back then, you everything's typeset, right? Like you're you have to actually move physical little you know, type. Yeah. <laughs> Which is wild to think about. <laughs> so it's a lot easier to do everything in the same type than to replace or, or so I think it comes from that history of like how manga came up in Japan as like originally a magazine and then mm-hmm. rather than as a separate art art form. Like I think I don't know the history of North American comics, so I could be totally way off. But yeah, I think it's a printer vestige and it's just a holdover now and that's how we do things. So I think that makes a lot of sense because like weekly North American comics tend to be pretty rare. So you have time to have someone go in and do everything by hand. But usually the sound effects in manga, I think, are where the artist kind of gets to shine in terms of typography, the right word for that. Mm. Typography. Sure. (laughs) Sure. I think it works. I mean, indie artists will do their own lettering and stuff like Kondo Mm -hmm. Akino, whose work was featured recently in Manga Splaining. She does all of her lettering by hand. Like it's all her. Okay. But she also could never work for a weekly magazine because that schedule is impossible when you're lettering everything on your own. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. Makes sense. It's, I love how no matter where you make comics, like practical considerations like that have such a huge effect on the art. Like, mm-hmm. It sounds like art school 101. Like, you know, the stuff you have defines what you get to do. But it can result in such fascinating differences, I guess, between, between the two different markets. Yeah, it's two totally different yeah. industries. It's kind of amazing, yeah. 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 Chip, I've got a question for you about Okinawa, <gasps> believe it or not. Do you right. think that this would appeal to fans of Garth Ennis? He has like the boys, but then he has oh. like sensitive war stories as well. And I kind of thought of him a little bit while reading this. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not I'm not entirely sure. I think I think there's elements of it, but but his stuff's also just so um I don't want to say gross. Not gross, gross but it's, it's there's there's a there's a an elevated baseness if that makes sense. Like yeah. he's really good at writing kind of like kind of base feeling stories, and and I don't think there's a baseness here, even in even in the war parts. That's true. A bit more high minded, I think. Yeah. 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 Maybe a specific type of Garth Ennis reader, like you or myself. Oh, the the best of the best. The best of the best. <laughs> the best of the best would appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. I'm really interested to see how this hits in North America. Because I think it's a it's a fantastic work. And it's yeah. a great kind of first choice for you guys as a publisher. But it but it is funny, like we, we talked about earlier in the interview, the author says like, Yeah, you know, it it hits a Japanese market, but you know, not like it's not it's obviously it's not, you know, Chainsaw Man or Naruto or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> But I think there's there's a certain segment of the North American kind of comics market that would really really dig this. I think Fantagraphics is a great choice too to kind of co-publish. Yeah, I don't want to blow so much smoke up your ass, but good job, everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <Yay>. Team <laughs> MSX. Yeah, for the win. Oh, 
I don't know if I said at the top of the podcast, I probably should have, but this was serialized on MangaSplainingExtra.com first. Mm -hmm. So it went from Japanese manga to digital comic, I guess is a better term than webcomic here, to print US edition again. Did you take a second pass at the copy editing after the web edition? Or was it basically done when it was up on MangaSplainingExtra? There was another round of copy edits to bring it to print. And like I said, they, they were, there was a little bit of, you know, some lettering tweaks for the print edition. Mm. And then, you know, we were putting together a book. So we had to do things like design the map that he was included in the original editions and mm-hmm. yeah, a whole bunch of stuff just to make this giant 554 page brick. But yeah, so it, it was an opportunity to go through and and we had another set of eyes. You know, we handed it in and fans mm-hmm. the graphics loved the book, but they they were like, this one thing here. There was a lot of adding and or removing commas. <laughs> that's actually the biggest uh, That's that's the biggest fight I, I find between editors <laughs> and, and English speaking works is it was the commas. Years long at Viz to get the Oxford comma. Like yeah. no joke. Yeah. <laughs> Jocelyn, how do you feel about the Oxford comma? I saw a face. I, I am pro Oxford comma, yes. and I have editors yeah. who take it out, and I get mad, which is yeah. why I was like, "Don't yeah. say anything about the Oxford yeah, comma." I get, I get mad as well. I'm with you. Should be there. Yes. <laughs> I think the book. I think it was great when we serialized it, but I think mm-hmm. you know, who has the luxury of going back and after you've already put the book in the world. And being like, wait, I could fix these 17 commas. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, that's yeah. luxury, but it also, like, editorial luxury, whatever that is. But mm-hmm. it also uh, just makes the book better. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 funny, because on, on, on my side of things in North American comics, with, like, the DC Marvel image system, the floppies are the first draft. Mm. And then when we do the collections, which will, you know, ostensibly last longer, that's when we go through like, oh, uh, that needed the comma or that taken out or like <laughs> a few things were spelled wrong here or there. So, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that second pass. Same. Like, good can always be better, which yeah. sounds like a short route to perfectionism. But in like a loose idea of good can always be better. Yeah. I like, you know that you have a deadline, but good can always yeah. be better until the exactly. deadline. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite things about working in publishing, and this has been for years now, is whenever you get a book back from the printer and you open it in the first page, you find a typo. And yeah. Like consistently, it is maddening, but it's also like kind of humbling at the same time. Like you're never going to catch everything. So it's yeah. good to have that, that fanographics pass as well. Yeah, for sure. We should probably talk a little bit about what Christopher and Deb brought to the project. Did they? Did they bring anything? Yeah, anything. Well, you know, Chris, I mean, yeah, <laughs> he's why it's 600 pages. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> he's why the interview was three hours long. Like, it's, so fu- it's so funny when I crack this open because like consistently on manga explaining, he'll assign a thing and be like, oh, it's just one volume. And then I'll get it and I'll realize it's like two books in one. I'm like, oh, Chris. And then as I was going through this, I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> he did it to me again with his own goddamn book. He did it to the world this time. He did it to the world. I love it. The world is being oh, manga explained by Chris. Yeah. yeah. It's so good. They did the moving and the shaking that made it happen. A lot mm. of it. 
Yeah. Not that, you know, we weren't sitting around doing nothing, but they, yeah, they did a lot of that. Chris in particular was doing a lot of when the book was being designed or when it was being prepared for even serialization online. He's, he was the one who was like cleaning up files and, and that sort of thing, mm. but also just like making this come together and uh, as a project. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and also yeah. like they are collaborators in the sense of like, neither of them went through the, the entire script to, to do copy edits or anything, but they were still the team. So, mm-hmm. you know, having good collaborators to be like, what do you think about this particular choice is always yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. And Chris is the one who instigated the whole project, I think, yeah. in, in the beginning. He's the one who approached me, <laughs> like, because I, I read the book in, like, I'm going to say, like, 2009, 2010, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, it's good. And, you know, I kind of had some conversations with a couple publishers, but it just sort of went nowhere because everyone's like, uh, no one wants to publish that. Like, because it's a very particular book, right? It has its own unique worldview. And especially in 2009, 2010, that was not what was coming out in in terms of manga. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a hard sell. And then Chris came to me like a couple years after that and was like, hey, what about that Okinawa book you were reading? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, do you think we could publish it? And I'm like, maybe (laughs) you mean just us and he's like yeah and i was like uh okay and so i sent him some synopses of the books um so he could get like actually see the story and not just like look at the pretty pictures Mm -hmm. and then i I sample translated a couple of the stories for him so he was trying he was trying to shop it around and see what he could do with his connections and that also sort of fizzled out and so then Mm -hmm. there was another kind of couple years of fallow where we were both like this is a great book but how where is it supposed to go what 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 home does it have and then like andrew was saying before we kind of came together a couple years after that and we're like hey let's why don't we do it like why don't we just publish books like we all have very specific tastes in manga that we really want to see in this world but no one's publishing them and it's getting really frustrating so Mm -hmm. that's when we really took it on in earnest and we were like okay let's try and see if we can do this and so we talked to higa and we're like hey can we do this and he's like yeah that would be oh, great. Even, like, was, through an agent or an editor, just straight to him? We talked to an like an agent that he's worked with to put us mm-hmm. in touch with him, but we went and wow. spoke directly with him. So we went to Okinawa because he's really old school. <laughs> so he was like, <laughs> communicating with Higa is is a is a, a, a bit of a trial at times because he doesn't have a computer, he doesn't have a cell phone, he does not use the internet at all. The full Alan Moore. He does yeah, use he, text machines. Yeah. He has a fax uh, machine. Classic. I had to get a fax number so that I could talk to him <laughs> and send him stuff. Yeah. So we went we went directly to Okinawa to talk to him and, and say, like, this is what we can do. This is what we can offer. Are you into it? And he's like, yeah, I'm 100% on board. Like, he was immediately from the get-go. He saw that we were really, like, serious about the book, that we really cared about it, that we were really, really going to do the best we possibly could with it. Mm-hmm. And it took a five, six years, but we did that. <laughs> Yeah. And he's really happy with the result. And yeah, all of the effort was totally worth it. All of the faxes. Plus, he sent yeah. me a box of oranges from Okinawa one time. That was really nice. <laughs> and he stuck with us, too, which is amazing. Because yeah. we did take a long time to pull this together. And he did yeah. not at any point say, you guys are not doing... Like, 
you know, he stuck with us. He never, yeah, he never came at us and was like, where's the project at? What's going on? Why aren't you working harder? He was always really like, I trust you. I know that you're doing right by my work and right by me. So a lot of, that's also a lot of the reason why I didn't feel the need to like consult him too much on translation was just because Mm -hmm. we already had that really strong relationship. And he was like, I trust your translation. I trust your abilities. You do what you have to do with the book. And so he was just such a kind and generous person to wait and it all came together finally. And he's super happy with the results. So that's <laughs> really gratifying to be able to present the author with a book. Like I never get to do that. Like, yeah, hey, what do you think? And they're like, wow. <laughs> so that was really, that was a really great moment. That's awesome. Do you also, I'm assuming you, you kept all the faxes and put them into a special book? <laughs> Well, because I didn't get an actual fax. I just got, you can get a fax number online where they send it to oh. you as an email. So oh. I have I have PDFs of all the faxes. <laughs> no, not the same. They'll be in the but he also sent me letters. Yeah. yeah, there we go. <laughs> we'll include all of our photos and, and faxes in, in the anniversary edition. I once had to make a comic with the Canadian cartoonist Seth via fax. I was interviewing him at the newspaper I worked at and I would draw a panel and he only worked by fax. So I had to draw a panel and then fax him that panel. And then he would fax me his panel. We just went back and forth (laughs) through the fax machine. It was a lot of fun. Very satisfying. I mean, getting that paper scrolling out like and seeing a Seth cartoon show show up. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was fun. Amazing. Yeah. So we covered about an hour of Okinawa. Does anyone have any closing thoughts? I don't think we need to do like final thoughts because it's not really a review episode. But anything you want to share with our audience before we get out of here? Rather, before we do an ad break and then get out of here. <laughs> ad breaks are important. We read the book, read Okinawa, please and thank you. That's it's really my good. Final <laughs> yeah, Andrew, it's really Andrew, good. counterpoint. <laughs> don't read this book. Uh, no please definitely read the book oh and on Explaining extra i think we're gonna run an additional comic by higa the body tree oh wow nice oh nice look for that either if you have read okinawa and loved it or if you want a taste of his cartooning yeah that sounds great my final thought is i really love this book it's amazing it's an amazing accomplishment and i'm just i'm so proud and happy for you guys for pulling it off and also just the fact that like like the manga explaining has even the smallest part to do with this brings me right? such joy even though i'm not seeing a, a dime from this <laughs> <laughs> buy you a drink later love it love it yeah that'll make <laughs> up I'm for it i'm in <laughs> yeah i am really proud of you too but i'm really proud of Christopher and Deb as well, because it's kind of cool to turn... I know the idea existed before manga explaining. We joke so much about publishing manga as manga explaining, and then yeah. they went and did it. And that's... I don't know. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I think it's cool. Yeah. Probably very difficult, <laughs> judging from talking to them, but, you know, worth it. Also, can but, I say, this is probably the smoothest episode of manga explaining without Chris and Deb here. <laughs> I don't know what that says about them. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, you two. You were officially yeah. drafted. Yeah, yeah, yes. you're in. You're in. I love it. Hi, I'm, I'm yeah. Jocelyn Allen with Bungus Planning. Already on board. Perfect. perfect. I'm perfect. Yeah. I'm, I'm ready. Yeah. It's my time to shine. Yes. Nice. We're going to take a short break. We're going to run an ad, and then we're going to come back and do some shout outs, and then let you get on with the rest of your day. Oh, wow. See you soon. 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. All right, we are back. We just had a nice long conversation about Susumu Higa's Okinawa, a great graphic novel from Manga Splaining Extra and Fantagraphics. Pick it up now. And we're also going to shout out some stuff that we've liked and enjoyed or maybe completely hated over the last while. Jocelyn, you're the most <laughs> energetic right now, so we're going to lead with you. It's morning for me, so I, I still mm. have my energy. I'm going to say one book that's sort of related to Okinawa, which is mm-hmm. Kyo Machiko's Cocoon. They just announced, um, maybe last month, they announced that it's getting an anime adaptation. So I really hope that will lead to an English translation because it's a really amazing book, similarly about the Okinawan War and and what it did to the people of Okinawa. But from the perspective of a troop of schoolgirls who were Mm. conscripted to be nurses for the soldiers and they worked in the caves, all of the caves that you see in Okinawa, you see some of the caves in there in the book. In Cocoon, these girls, like, High school girls, junior high school girls worked in these caves as nurses taking care of like severely wounded soldiers and dying men. And like the situation just gets worse and worse and worse, as you can imagine. Kyo, she does it in this way where like the girls are very drawn. Like she has a really soft, beautiful line that I love. And so the girls are really vivid and emotional and full of expression. But all Mm -hmm. of the men are just like white glowy shadows like human shaped shadows so they're just like they're this scary presence in the girls world that they don't understand and this stylistic choice is so interesting that's cool yeah it's a really great book i'd love to see it in english the anime might bring it in english so fingers crossed worst case we can lean on christopher and deb yeah, i totally you know i am i'm like hey chris deb hi do you want to publish Can I do one other shout out? That's not a bummer. (laughs) No, no, sorry. It's only one per. There's only bummer shout outs. (laughs) No, what have you got for us? I was just going to say that I've been rewatching What Did You Eat Yesterday? The drama adaptation of Fumi Yoshinaga's uh, manga. And Mm. it is a treasure and a delight and everyone should watch it. It's on Netflix. I don't think it's on Netflix in America, but if you're Mm. in Japan, it is subtitled in English. So you can enjoy sweet, sweet love of two middle-aged men who enjoy cooking together lovely yeah mm-hmm. it's just very heartwarming <laughs> chip you have the shout out i'm gonna go real low this week and i'm just gonna say my shout out is uh sex in the city and just like that oh. <laughs> okay <laughs> i'm in i'm in you know what i got all i got all caught up you know i miss i miss the, the ladies i miss samantha i miss mm-hmm. charlotte miranda I'm sad Samantha's not there, but you know I'm I'm dealing. 
And uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's good. I'm not gonna say it's good, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just, I'm just drawn to it. It's like, it's like a warm blanket around me. Sex in the City meant a lot to me in my youth, and I'm glad to see it back. Nice. And just like that, Andrew, do you have anything for us this week? Other than my terrible segue from Chips Sex in the City. <laughs> I've been catching up on Blue Lock, actually. Oh, soccer the, manga? The soccer manga. I have no interest in oh. soccer whatsoever. And I'm always amazed by sports manga that can get me excited. Because I, mm. I have no enthusiasm for the topic at all. But it's great. I love it. It makes, yeah, I don't know. I'm just totally, totally swept up. Blue Lock. Check it out. Everyone already knows, but... <laughs> the artists on that one, they're really good. I like some of their prior manga as well. Like, really... Like, good squash and stretch, I guess, to borrow an animation term. Like, mm-hmm. like mm. creepy-looking fun characters. Nice. If you're not into sports manga, what brought you to that, Andrew? I wanted to know what all the buzz was about. I wanted to, because okay. I feel mm. like it's huge, and everyone's loving it, and so I, I needed to know why. And it's just, it's really well structured. It's got some good, not twists exactly, but but it, it like, pleats, sort of. Like, one one more layer of complexity every volume, you know? I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's keeping me going. Hmm. Cool. And I will wrap us up for this episode. A long-running manga explaining trope is me watching things that I should have watched, I don't know, 60, 70 years ago. <laughs> and on that note, I finally saw Koyanis Katsi, the like 1982 non-narrative film. It's sort hmm. of just all imagery of like Earth and life and things like that. And it's actually a fantastic like counter, not counterpoint counterpart to okinawa oh i can totally see that yeah yeah it emphasizes like our relationship to the earth and how we could very easily screw it up and probably have Mm. thoroughly screwed it up already it's very moving despite having no words and like the way that higa talks about okinawa feels sort of like the way that godfrey reggio the director depicted the earth where it's like no this is our home we have to love this place if we don't like we're all screwed and I didn't think this shout out was going to be a bummer when I started talking. I, get there in the end. <laughs> I, I tried to get us away from the bummer shout out. Yeah, it's just a, a nice square now. I'll bring it around. <laughs> I used to do a lot of my comics writing to that soundtrack, the Philip Glass soundtrack. Oh, yeah. 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 I could totally see so, it. It's an amazing movie. So to bring it back up, I was writing Howard the Duck to that. <laughs> nice. You brought it way, way up. Good job. Thank you. See? Thank you. Perfect. So, Chip. I think we did it. I think we should thank Jocelyn, we should thank Andrew, and then we should go to bed. So I suppose we should. What do you think? Yeah. It makes it sound like we're going to bed. We're going to bed together. (laughs) I think think it's time for us to go to bed. It's like a Bert and Ernie thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, But Jocelyn, Andrew, thank you for a great conversation. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for having us. It was was fun. You had fun, too. Awesome. We'll see you next week.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.